the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky interests and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my buds, Mike and Brian. Mike, how are you today? Good, sir? I'm doing really well. Glad to hear it. Brian, you doing good? Uh, pass. I understand that completely. I really do. <laughs> All right. Well, before we head into Geek Out, I want to talk Star Trek. I approve. Excellent. Motion carries. So uh, Wait, don't I get a vote? Y- the motion has carried, Mike. For formality, oh. sure, but it's... Okay, know. fine. What, what do you say? I already know the answer, but go ahead. I was going to say yes if I could talk about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> Allowed. Absolutely allowed. So uh, recently was uh, San Diego Comic-Con, where the full trailer for the much-anticipated Star Trek Picard dropped. And for the first time in years, I am actually excited about Star Trek again. Because, to be honest, I've not had a lot of interest in Discovery. I've seen some clips online, YouTube and stuff, and it's they've been okay. But it's been nothing I've been eager to see more of. Something else that kind of ran into the negative was that there's currently a lawsuit against uh, the writers of Discovery where a game maker no claimed, yeah, the, this game maker claimed that the writers plagiarized his game uh, called Tardigrades. And I've read the articles, I've watched some videos, and whether it's actually plagiarism or it's just coincidence, there's enough there that really doesn't make me eager to jump onto the CBS All Access train. I have enough streaming services as it is, and so I was no hurry uh-huh. to pay monthly for one TV show. However, that's changed. Paying monthly for two TV shows. That's completely I, different. I have an idea. Why don't we why don't we just download Targrades, play that, and then say, Oh yeah, I feel pretty familiar with Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys had a chance to watch the Picard trailer yet? Yes. yes. Okay, so I watched it on my phone because as soon as I saw it, I popped up on my Facebook feed or on somewhere. I'll be up watching it now. And during the whole thing, especially that final scene with Picard playing cards with Data, I had the biggest smile on my face. And my <laughs> my daughter it was even looking at me going, Daddy, why are you so happy? <laughs> like, just... this is art happening, child. Exactly. I was just full of so much joy at this trailer. It was so much fun. And I'm like, all right, CBS, for this, and apparently they are coming out with a animated Star Trek show, um, mm-hmm. which has been getting a lot of buzz. And I've seen some, uh, some stills of the artwork. That looks pretty cool. All right, at least for a while, I'm in. You know, and the thing is, I was thrilled to see Jerry Ryan in there. And I'm, I'm thinking if she is on the show, I thought that... Mm-hmm. Seven of Nine was a really fascinating character, and I think now that we're moving into a more long-form storytelling with our television shows, watching her new arc, if she was actually in it, rather than, you know, the Star Trek cameo that they always do in the in the pilot in the first mm-hmm. episode, would be really fascinating, especially because it looks like in this one, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, did you guys get the, the sense that that Picard is not with Starfleet on this, and he is just kind of going out on his own on his quest? He's completely going out on his own. Nice. Which I think uh, there's kind of a a little bit of a film noir kind of feel to the the trailer that 
independent investigator and maybe the, the higher ups, the government is opposing him. And so I really hope that they, they channel a little bit of that Dixon Hill fandom that he's got. Oh, dude, I was thinking the it. exact same thing. Yes. Exactly. And, of course, it's been confirmed that there will be appearances from other Next Generation alumni. Jonathan Franks and uh, Marina Sertris have both confirmed that they'll be making guest appearances. And I love the fact everyone's going on like, oh, Picard has a dog. Picard has a dog. Yep, that's cool. <laughs> um, I thought that was that was nice, too. But then I read that the dog's official name is Number One. <laughs> oh, my. Well, that's Star Trek Picard. Mike, Lord of the Rings, what have you got? Well, it's not so much of what I've got. It's that uh, Prime dropped a teaser for their new Lord of the Rings series. Did they? I and did not see that. Yes. It has absolutely zero visuals on what's going to appear on the screen. But what they do is they have this old-timey typewriter kind of starting to type out stuff that, as, as though it was Tolkien typing, but we know it's not. And they're typing the names and positions of some of the talent that they've recruited to do their new Middle Earth-based TV series. And I did some digging and found out that they are booked for five seasons. And they wow. acquired the rights two years ago. And the contract is that they had two years to move on it. So 2019 is the year that they are moving forward. And there's some actually really interesting news on how they're handling this. They're not going to touch anything that Peter Jackson did with The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings but they're basing it all in the second age, which we don't know what the narrative arc is going to be, but I could probably guess that the end of season five is going to be the first War of the Ring. Mm -hmm. So they'll be pulling heavily from the Lost Tales, uh, Tales of Middle-Earth, the Cimmerillion, and um, other peripheral material like that. It's probably going to be coming a lot from the Silmarillion. If I were plotting that show... I would be starting with Sauron coming to Numenor. That would make a great first season. And the end of the first season being the fall of Numenor? Uh-huh, and the sinking of Beleriand. Yeah. I have read some theories about where they're going to go, because it was confirmed that it was going to take... I don't know if confirmed, but there were a lot of rumors going around that the first season would be taking place during the Second Age, and some were saying that it was the first season would be uh, events leading up to the fall of Gondolin um, or even the, the War of Wrath between the uh, elves and the orcs, the House of Turin. I mean, there's, there's so much. There's so much there that can be used and would make such incredible and exciting arcs over the, a season or two. I, I just I don't know where it's going to fall. I guess we'll have to wait until uh, casting comes out and we we finally get some character names and uh that'll kind of help us narrow it down a little more it wouldn't surprise me if that doesn't happen until very very late in the game right as much as they're playing it close to the vest i, I think you're probably right ian mckellen was interviewed by some french media i don't i don't remember what it was off the top of my head but he was asked how would you feel about another actor playing gandalf and he just sort of reacted well, what what do you mean another Gandalf? Like, Gandalf is is over three thousand years old. Are you saying that I'm too old to play Gandalf? <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't quite come in into, unless he was in spirit form, uh, because he was a uh, blanking on it. Is it Mayar? Mayar was it Mayar? Mayar. Mayar. Sorry, Mayar, I mispronounced. Yeah. So 
that he wouldn't they be coming sent in. to Middle Earth until the Third Age, I believe. Right. So he would maybe be a disembodied spirit voice. I, I don't know. I'd, I'd still be all in. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting that that, that that trailer dropped. That's not telling us much, but enough to, to know that they are, in fact, working on it and give us some structure in terms of what we can expect. You know, all of these fantasy and sci-fi-based TV shows, a lot of them that we discussed in an earlier episode, talking about book-to-film adaptations, it's starting to really happen. I mean, Netflix's The Witcher is going to be dropping in just a couple of months, and they're in the middle of casting for The Wheel of Time, and now more Lord of the Rings news. I'm like, holy cow, this is actually happening. This is all actually happening. (laughs) Now all it has to do is be good. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's a tall order. Yeah, that's going to be all of our attitudes. We're all going to sit down to watch this, and all three of us, I can picture chanting, please don't suck, please don't suck, please don't <laughs> yeah, suck. I, I still have PTSD from Earthsea. Yeah. I yeah. don't. I had absolutely no problem with that. I mean, of course, I never watched it, so I mean. <laughs> that, that was the correct decision. I didn't either because I saw the trailers for it, and I thought, you know what? I'm not even. I've got too much of a bad feeling about this. Mm, It was not good. Oh, and speaking of fantastic, I mean, it's not an adaptation, but in streaming services as well, uh, sometime in the next couple of months, Disney is going to be revealing their new streaming service. And it's only 7 bucks a month, or it's $70 a year. That was my first reaction, Mike, was, hooray, yay, whatever, the mouse, woo. But then I read that on the same day it's coming out, The Mandalorian will also be available to watch. Me? I'm not paying for another streaming service. If it comes out at the library, I'll check it out. If they release Mm -hmm. DVD discs on it, which they're gonna, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll get those from some other means. I'll, I'll check those out from Netflix. It's just... Not one more thing. Nope, I get it completely. Mm-hmm. I'm considering it because I do have three little ones, especially one daughter who is into Disney. And you add that along with I really want to watch The Mandalorian and whatever <laughs> content they come out with after that, like 7 bucks a month or 70 a year. That's, you know, I could do that, and I would still be coming out better than when I had cable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cool. Let us know how it is and whether or not I should be checking them out from the library. Because, I mean, I'm I'm super happy that they're doing the content. I'm more than happy to watch it. But I get not wanting to have another one. I, I completely understand that, as I just mentioned a little bit ago about CBS. <laughs> I actually think that we've just completed our segment to the future without really planning to. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so we will head into Geek Out then. Who wants to start us off? Why don't you go first this time, James? I was just thinking the exact same thing. So I just finished watching the fourth and final season of the TV show Turn, Washington Spies. It's an AMC show, which was also put on Netflix, about the Culper spying that helped win the Revolutionary War. And honestly, I got to say, I think it's one of the best shows currently on Netflix. And as a period spy drama, it, it was great. It constantly had me on edge. And... It's a historically based, not an alt-fiction, Revolutionary War series, so you know how it's going to end. But still, I felt every bit of hope and anxiety and fear that these characters had. It was an excellent dramatization portraying people and events that were crucial to the Revolution, but 
aren't as well known. I mean, the the spy ring and spying in general is not something that's mentioned or taught in history classes. Excellent acting, really great costumes. They really nailed how the 1700s would have looked and felt. And to give praise to one person in particular, it had one of the best portrayals of General George Washington that I think I've ever seen on screen. Played by a gentleman named Ian Kahn. He played Washington with a real great sense of strength and dignity and passion. For that reason alone, I would say check it out. But just I encourage you, watch the whole thing. Four seasons long, each season with, I think, 10 to 12 episodes. But all around fantastic. My only real gripe would be, you know, Hollywood has to add some elements to it. And that would be uh, how much peril they placed the lead spy, Abraham Woodhull. Now, I realize that his real life probably had some dangers, but it seemed that in the show, every other episode had, had him either about to be kidnapped, about to be hanged, about to be shot, about to be murdered, about to be discovered by the British, or worse, discovered by his father. I mean, he's portrayed this, as this man who was a farmer and was pulled into the life of being a spy, but he was a really crummy farmer in the show. I mean, no wonder the man couldn't grow cabbages. He must have had so much anxiety, the man couldn't even grow a beard. <laughs> <laughs> is this a show that either one of you have checked out yet or even heard of? Uh, no, this is the first I I've have... heard of it. Uh, I think the mark of a good show, or, well, let's be honest, sometimes the mark of even a bad show, is one that makes you more curious about the source material. Right. right. Now, the series Turn is actually based on the book Washington Spies, the story of America's first spy ring by Alexander Rose. Now, I put that book on my Amazon list because I was thinking, I've got to read this. I've got to find out the details of the story. But I actually ended up reading a different one. How I found this one is that someone had the presumptuousness to put a half-price bookstore right next door to my gym. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the gall. So like, what I, are you what are you hitting harder, the gym or the bookstore? That's what I want to know. Yeah, you, usually those spots are reserved for like ice cream parlors and bakeries. Yeah, not here. So it was <laughs> It was like I've been lifting. Now I can carry more books. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't lost on me. I did finish up at the gym one day and I thought, mm, you know what? I'll, I'll I'll just go in for a few. And I found a copy of George Washington's Secret Six, The Spy Ring That Saved the American Revolution by Brian Kilmeade and Don Yeager for about six bucks. Uh, nice. It's a fun read. It very simply explains the people, the places, the events of the history. And my only concern is that when the authors didn't have factual evidence, the authors kind of had a tendency to write little pockets of fiction. Might that have happened? Yeah, it could have. But they do help set the tone for the different situations and for what might have happened. But sometimes, in places, it does read more like a novel. Are they honest about the fact that they're fictionalizing some of these events? It doesn't really get brought up in those words, but they do kind of allude to that at the beginning. Now, I do plan okay. on getting Alexander Rose's book as well, which I'm hoping, I and mean, I'm fairly sure will offer up a more detailed history. But, I mean, for six bucks, it's been a fun, fast read, and it's made me more curious to continue my research. And I should also mention that while I was there getting that book, I also found an excellent hardbound copy of The Letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. No way. Oh, yep. Nice blue hardcover printed in 1982. It's got that perfect old book smell. Uh, it does not get any better than that. And that one was only $10. So I came away with a happy day at the gym, happier day at the bookstore. Right. 
Yeah, sounds like you hit that jackpot. Um, for my next geek out, Mike, you know this as well as I, being a geek and a parent can really be hard at times. Not always, but sometimes yes. And I found that you have to be serious about time management. Oh, yeah, totally. Now, you can be geeky with your kids, and you can share those things with them, but you time, personal you time, whether it's doing something geeky or something else, that is equally as important. Right. Got to take care of yourself at some point. Exactly. Because sometimes there's no more you to give out. I might start using this. The dad meter has run dry. It's time for your kids to go away. Go to bed. <laughs> we actually still, after church, have mandatory rest time. Like after we get done with our, you know, with our board meetings and our fellowship dinners and the activities that happen in and around or immediately after church, we have mandatory rest time for the children. And the children have come to question this, like, Mom, Dad, we're 10 and 11. We don't need naps. We're not little kids. We we don't really need rest time. And we're like, oh, oh, dear heart, you, you misunderstand. You go to your room to be rest time so we can be decent human beings to you. Exactly. So recently, Joy and I's geek time is when... We have finally gotten the kids into bed, and we've got ourselves about an hour to do something. And usually that takes the form of watching a show. And right now, with all of our favorites either in the off-season or still in the midst of being created, we decided to go back and restart Warehouse 13. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. See, last episode, Brian shared that all the episodes are on Amazon through, like, Amazon Play, Amazon, what's that? It's a IMDb. They changed the name of it. I don't know what they call it now. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, where they actually put some commercials in there, but you can watch it for free, which I'm perfectly fine doing. And we didn't go all the way back to the beginning, but maybe about a third of the way into Season 1 is when we started. And uh, we're about in the middle of Season 2 right now. Thankfully, Amazon has all five seasons, so we can finally see how the season ends. And for my final geek out, so last night, my lovely lady and I decided to have a date night for the next few weeks. We got busy weekends, so we decided we need to have a date night to ourselves because who knows when in the next month we're going to get a chance to do so. Not really any movies out that we want to see right now. Wanted to do something more than just the typical get dinner. So I started looking around what was available in our area, and... I was able to get tickets for us to see a murder mystery at the Texas Star Dinner Theater in Grapevine. Oh, that sounds like fun. It was a lot of fun. It was very much a theater-in-the-round experience. All the actors came out and basically just moved around the tables after we had finished eating dinner. Uh, The food was good. The entertainment was fun. Laughed a lot. And uh, for about an hour and a half, two-hour show, it was a great experience. Didn't even really feel the time fly by. And that will wrap it up for me. Who's next? Well, we had a listener question that I think that Ryan can cover. So why don't we have Ryan go next? All righty. Well, I guess I'll lead off with that then. Uh, So last time I talked quite a bit about my Oculus Rift and playing Beat Saber and uh, Vader Immortal. uh, And that led to a, a listener question delivered by Mike. I'll just go ahead and quote it. Do you know if you can watch Netflix on it? There was a concern about migraines. Anyway, have you tried it, and do you love it? Is it worth the fortune it costs for such a contraption? Yes, you can watch Netflix on it if you want to, but there's not really a whole lot of benefit. I've got a 
with the with the Oculus, you've got like this home environment that you can build your specifications. If you have skill with uh, 3D modeling, you can actually even build your own home. But they've got some templates to to start it with if you prefer to do that. And I've got one that's actually like a little theater. It's got a a big screen and a virtual chair that I put my real chair in the same spot as the virtual chair, so I can sit down and I can. Well, I'd say I could eat some popcorn, but since you can't actually see anything that you've got in your hands, it's a little difficult to always know where the bowl is. Hmm. Uh, but the advantage you get there is that you can get a screen that like totally fills your field of view. Like most people have relatively small televisions, and so you know if you hold your arms out yeah, like shoulder width, probably your television screen looks like about that width to you from wherever you're sitting at, looking at it. Uh, with a VR screen, you can have it fill your entire field of view, so you can get a little bit more of a theatrical experience. But on the other hand, you've also got this plastic and glass thing strapped to your face, and it's hot and it's heavy. And so it's not really the best environment for watching a movie in. The exception maybe is if you're watching something that is 3D. Uh, it can be kind of cool. I watched the uh, Doctor Who 50th anniversary special on my uh, Oculus. Oh, that'd be a good one. Yeah, because I didn't have any other way to watch stereo at home, so <laughs> so I watched it in the Rift, and it was fine. But like I said last time, I seem to be like well adapted to VR, and I can easily spend an hour or two hours in it uh, without being too terribly uncomfortable. So yeah, I've I have watched some television on my Oculus. It's not the way I prefer to do it. I prefer to just go ahead and watch my television. Uh, I wouldn't buy one just for that purpose, but for the VR games and the, some of the experiences, I think it absolutely is is worth the cost. Um, but then again, I also have a great deal of disposable income um, being single and working a pretty nice job. So my calculus might be different than yours. And there's a follow-up question. Is there any way to try out try one of these out for somebody who's concerned that it might be causing headaches? As a matter of fact, uh, most Best Buys uh, will have an oculus available uh, if you want to try it out go sometime when it's like uh, relatively uh, calm there you know during the week or something don't go on a saturday when there's a line of kids wanting wanting to try it but a lot of best buys have it and there's actually i closed my browser on this uh try out vr you just type that into uh just type try out vr into google and you'll get this uh Windows Central article everywhere you can go to try VR before buying. They've got links to all the various different uh, websites for each of the the different VR systems that you can go to. The Oculus Rift one is almost certainly going to send you to Best Buy, but there'll be a a little search bar that you can type in your location. And it'll it'll show you the nearest demo site to you. There's also the option if you want to make a day of it and you just happen to like this sort of thing. They do have VR arcades out there. That's true. So. And a matter of fact, uh, if there's a Dave & Buster's near you, a lot of times Dave & Buster's will have some VR gear. You know, that just reminded me, for a different date night, Joy and I went to a local Dave & Buster's, and they had a VR ride. You get into a some seats, and the, the platform the seats are on will move around, and you put on VR headsets. And oh, it, it took you through a, a Jurassic Park ride. And oh, wow. It was really, yeah... At two different times when it looked like the boxcar or the, the, the tram you were on was about to go over a ledge, the seats would pitch forward, your view would go straight <laughs> down, and I felt my stomach just drop right out. 
And <laughs> part of me was like, ah, but the logical part of my mind was going, oh, well done. Well done indeed. <laughs> now, it was only a five, six minute long ride, but I took it off, no problems. Now, I don't know how I would feel with extended use, but for that short a time frame, I was fine. Mm-hmm. And they say, you know, when you're when you're first starting to get used to VR to do it at maybe 10 or 15 minute intervals, because it does take some adaptation before your your eyes get used to operating in that in that fashion. Makes sense. Like, you know, if you do it if you do it frequently, then the length of time that you'll be able to spend in VR before you start getting uncomfortable will will increase. Your story actually reminds me of the first time that I tried it. A coworker had his he he backed the Kickstarter for Oculus, and so he had the like one of the first first generation visors, and he put it on your head and instead of like giving you controls and letting you walk around and try and experience this, he's walking around for you. And so you're standing next oh, to his no. desk and he's controlling where you walk and you're like, and people are like falling down. <laughs> it's like, it was, it was not the best introduction to, to VR in the world. So uh, if you have the chance, don't do it like that. Make sure you actually have the control yourself rather than somebody trying to just make you fall down by making you dizzy that way. <laughs> so speaking of availability, and this really surprised me just because I was curious after our last episode and your description of Vader Immortal, I decided to hop on Amazon and see what Oculus Rifts are going for these days. I was expecting like between 700 to 1,000, to be frank. Oh, no, if they're not way more. less than that, yeah. And I saw that, like, there is a, if you don't have a home computer to run it, they've even got a Oculus Go standalone, and those are as low as $200. Yeah, now oh, my wow. understanding of that is that it's essentially just a glorified, uh, well, not a glorified, but it's essentially like the Google Cardboard, but with built-in optics. Uh, so the optics are better than just sticking your phone against your face, but it's still essentially just a phone's processor. Okay. Uh in the device, and so you're not going to get the the same level of quality and the same uh, like frame rates as you do from the one that actually plugs into a mm-hmm. computer. But if you go a little higher than that, though, like the mm-hmm. Oculus Rift S PC powered VR headset was only four hundred dollars. I'm like, that's still expensive, but nowhere near what I was expecting it to be. And it might be a little bit even cheaper if you buy it directly from Facebook. I don't know what they're. See the Oculus Rift S, oh, 400. So yeah, that's the uh, the current price on it. And sometimes they do go on sale. So if it's something that you're feel okay putting off for a while, wait for a while, and you'll probably see it for around 300 on sale at some point. You just got to be paying attention. It'll be a little bit longer than that because right now all I've got is a laptop. So right, you definitely do need some serious GPU power to 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 drive the thing. Yeah, a, a five-year-old Dell laptop ain't going to cut it. <laughs> um, well, aside from still playing a lot of Beat Saber, uh, which is still a heck of a lot of fun, um, I visited my family last week and got the opportunity to see uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. Oh, yeah. Oh, I saw that. Same here. That movie just put a huge smile on my face the whole time. So much so that uh, when my sister came into town, I... Went and saw it again. Wow. <laughs> In fact, I saw Spider-Man three times so far. <laughs> I liked it that much. I don't blame you one bit. That was a fantastic movie. 
I saw it because we were camping in Maine, and there was one day that actually Acadia National Park, which is gorgeous, by the way. And there was a day that it was just raining and raining and raining on the campsite. And it wasn't horrible, but you just don't want to sit and make breakfast in that. So we said, let's just go into the next town up. And my daughter was sick as well. So she could only walk around town in, in and out of shops to get out of the rain. So it's like, I really want to sit down for like a couple of hours. Like, well, there's a theater. What are they playing? Spider-Man Far From Home. That'll do nicely. <laughs> yeah. And it was just such a great story. I mean, the, the storytelling was, was just really on point, really tight. And the, the portrayal of the character of, of, uh, and now suddenly Mysterio, <laughs> suddenly his name fled my mind, was just exactly what I wanted to see. Um, and I've seen him kind of mishandled in the past. I was never really fond of Mysterio's portrayal in uh, the Spider-Man animated series back in the 90s. Uh, but the film just really, really made him really cool. I I loved it so much. I think Jake Gyllenhaal really nailed that one. Mm, yeah, Absolutely. What's really great is that I hadn't even seen the last Infinity War. So, I mean, I, I knew enough and kind of figured from from the first Infinity War movie that, okay, yeah, they're, they're going to bring it all back. But the exposition in the show was good enough that I feel like I really didn't miss much by not having seen it. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that the storytelling, catching us up to speed was, was really good. And, yeah, I thought that it was... It followed a pretty standard formula. I don't count that against it because it did the formula so well. Right. And it was it was kind of exactly what I wanted to see, a nice self-contained story that wasn't all about the, the connections to the rest of the world, except for just like the very beginning. And it was just about Peter Parker and his particular insecurities. And that just, it was a, it was a really good Spider-Man story. It was. I will fully admit Tom Holland has been my favorite non-animated Spider-Man. I wasn't sold on him at first, but I definitely am now. Yeah. I I like him a lot. I mean, this is going to catch me a little bit of flack from some of our listeners, but I was never a huge fan of Tobey Maguire. I was. I liked him. That's fair. And I I realize many do. But yeah, he... you can dislike things that I like. That's fine. Yeah, that's it's allowed. This is a safe area. This is a safe zone. <laughs> um, I thought he peaked with Spider-Man too. Well, that's definitely true. Yeah, well, that was the last one they made, right? Yes, it was. Right. Yes, okay. it was. Yes. <laughs> and nothing against Andrew Garfield for his amazing Spider-Man movies, but I fell asleep during the first one. And decided I didn't want the second one to turn me into a narcoleptic. <laughs> I just couldn't be bothered. Just I didn't want to see it. So I walked into uh, Spider-Man Homecoming with a lot of trepidation. I thought Tom Holland did an okay job in Captain America Civil War. He did good enough that, all right, I'll give, I'll give Homecoming a try. And I walked out of Homecoming just wanting to turn around and see it again. Yeah, I never saw Homecoming either. It's fun, and you should be able to get that at the library, no problem. <laughs> and Far From Home was just was fantastic. I enjoyed right. Homecoming, but I didn't feel like Michael Keaton really delivered the, the villain that I wanted to see. I liked him as a villain. I did. I thought he portrayed the character of a, a man who's been kind of dealt one blow too many job-wise and from the government, 
and decides to to kind of do things on the less than legal side. I will say this: How many Marvel villains are we going to get that their entire backstory is Tony Stark screwed them over? <laughs> A well, lot, I'm sure. Yeah, at least another year or two, probably. Yeah. Because think See, about I, it: How many Marvel movies, Iron Man movies, Spider Man movies, Avengers movies, and more? People who their whole thing is that they've got beef with Tony Stark. Do you know what I can imagine that most of the Marvel universe? I mean, if they've met him, they've they've, <laughs> they've clashed with Tony Stark's personality. I mean, let, let's let's be real here. He's great on screen, but he'd be an awful boss. Oh yeah. Horrible boss. So why hasn't Pepper Potts gone full villain then? <laughs> well, she's just that great. She's just that don't, great. Oh, don't say that too loud. You're going to give them ideas. <laughs> Speaking of um, people close to Tony Stark and also about Spider-Man, I really liked that scene where Happy Hogan has picked up Tom Holland in, well, Holland, and is telling him... I, I didn't make that connection. <laughs> wow. And he's telling him that Tony was my best friend. I love the guy. He was a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> he was constantly second-guessing himself. He was so messed up. And I liked that because I think that's exactly what the character needed to hear. And it's it was also what the audience needed to hear. Because since mm-hmm. this was the first movie since Endgame. And uh, had a little yeah, and- grieving point for everyone, for the characters and for the audience. And as much as people in the Marvel Universe fawned over Tony Stark, the audience did too. And he was a messed up character. I mean, he made bad choices. He was a jerk. And sometimes the audience just needs somebody to remind them that this is not the person that you should be idolizing and modeling yourself after. Yeah. He was, in many ways, a, uh, a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. But uh, Robert Downey Jr. was just so charismatic in the role that it's a little bit easy to forget that, that Stark was had his issues. <laughs> That's putting it lightly. Yes. Uh, know, well, if I can say one more thing about that film before we move on, I, I have to say this because I have been a longtime fan of Kirsten Dunst. And with that being said, I need you to understand that Zendaya is my favorite MJ now. Because her, I mean, she was just the perfect high school conspiracy theorist, but intelligent little, I don't want to call her a nut job because, I mean, she was obviously smart. She pieced a lot of things together, but she also had just enough off kilter that was high school believable, if that makes mm-hmm. any sort of sense. But, and she I had just, a, a persona that she had constructed for herself and it, was, it felt just like a high schooler doing that. without being obnoxious and it was and also just her screen presence she had these these facial characterizations that really felt like she was leaning into this into this mj character and i thought that was grand well uh finally i have been really burying myself in uh this primetime adventures game that i alluded to last time uh, shadows in the toy box we had our first session uh last saturday and it was just marvelous. I wasn't feeling it at the time. I mean, as a, a GM, a producer in Primetime Adventures parlance, I was sick. I was in an unfamiliar place. I had two cats and a dog pestering me. Uh, I was in tremendous amounts of stress. I had just been traveling, and I had fallen down the stairs and sprained my knee just Ooh. an hour before. Ow. So I was... I was in no shape to be doing this. And we had technical difficulties just 
so much. Like I tested my microphone before I left for, for Kansas. And then when I got there, it didn't work anymore. So it took at least an hour to get my microphone working. I had to go over to my brother's house and get a USB headset from him. And it's just like one thing after another was really, really making it hard. Uh, but then I, I listened back to the recording. I did my edit and I'm like, you know what? It was short and it was painful, but this session just really worked. Everybody was had a already a pretty good handle on their characters and it was funny. There was some action in it. I had a heck of a lot of fun doing the silly voices. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was just when in the moment I felt really bad about it, but having listened back to it, I was like, that was a good session. And I'm really, really looking forward to what it's going to be like when I actually am on top of everything and able to give it my all. I think that assuming that we go the distance and we get all five sessions in and recorded that the, everybody's going to really enjoy listening to it eventually. It's one of those things. Sometimes you feel crummy about something, but as important as feelings are to check in with, they often don't tell you the whole picture. <laughs> that mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. can feel awful, but it's really grand, especially if everybody's having a good time. And if that's what happened, then mission accomplished for an RPG session. Yeah, yeah. And one of there's some really great advice I got when I was in theater many many years ago, that the audience wants you to succeed. They want they're there to be entertained. They want everything to go great. They're not sitting in their seats ready to judge you unless they happen to actually be a theater critic. And so no matter how bad you feel about your performance, the audience is predisposed to forgive you for a lot. And that goes ten times as much for a role playing game when. You know, most of the story is coming actually out of the players. They want to have fun. They're there to have fun. And if you drop the ball, they probably don't even notice because they're having a good time. And that's one of the greatest things. I Whether you're going to podcast, whether you're ever going to, to share it with anybody or not, I think every GM should record their sessions. Uh, just being able to listen back to it. For one thing, it's objective. You can... Uh, mine it for ideas from whatever the players were talking about while you were feverishly writing notes about something that was completely unrelated. Um, <laughs> you could, you can listen back to it and find out what the players were actually excited about, figure out, okay, why did they go totally the wrong direction? And you listen back to you here. Oh, because I said the wrong word at some point and that gave them a red herring. And, you know, so it's just, it's a really great way to feel better about your own GMing when you, you get that objective listen to it and you hear how much fun everybody was having. That's solid advice I've never heard before. That is really good. Life advice from Geek at Arms. (laughs) You have my admiration, my friend. If I had gone through everything that you did, I probably would have called the whole shebang off and gone to Dairy Queen. Yeah, I might have pulled the plug. (laughs) Yeah, well, if it hadn't been that we'd been building up for it and we rescheduling it would have been putting it off for at least another month, I'm was really tempted to do that, but I just like, ah, oh, man, I don't want to to put in all this work and then have it killed by just circumstance like this. It would have really bummed me out. So moving on, Mike, what are you geeking out about? I actually have a lot of reading material on my list this time because I've been away on vacation and uh, spent a week in the Outer Banks. And I'll insert this here because I, I think this is this is worthy of, of geek out. Because when we were we were on vacation in the Outer Banks, we got all of my my wife's extended family, we all pitch in together and and stay in a house on the beach. And we get there and there is this strange metal object just projecting up out of the water. 
and mm. we're sitting there figuring out what is this strange, mysterious thing. And I'm not a sort of person who can just let that go. And so <laughs> I started doing all kinds of, of searches in terms of here's our location and here's something in the water. And I found in wreck divers websites that people have discussed that this is the suspected remains of the USS Pocahontas, which had wrecked during a storm during the Civil War. And huh. so we get to, and my, my brother-in-law absolutely loves Civil War history. So once I give him this, he's starting to search on what is the, what is the history of the USS Pocahontas? Why might this be? Why might this not be the Pocahontas? And what was, what was the fate of that ship? And the short story is that there was a brigade to, uh, surprise, surprise, invade the South, which is what the North did during the Civil War. If you'd never heard that before, it was real. <laughs> Spoilers. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and so during the brigade, the USS Pocahontas was a supply ship carrying somewhere upwards of 100 horses. And during the storm, the ship had sunk. But they were able to save most of the horses. So, you know, good news. For the rest of the horses, it did not work out being seahorses. Uh, and what you, can see, what you can see the remains of is the crankshaft and part of the pistons that were attached to the paddle wheel. And there's some discrepancy because the type of engine that you can see beneath the surface if you're a wreck diver does not quite match up what should have been on the USS Pocahontas. So there's still a little bit of mystery. But I got some pretty cool pics of it and we had some great time exchanging the history of what this is and, and just kind of geeking out together about Civil War history. But while I was on vacation, I usually bring several books along with me so I can just kind of plow through and have a lot of dedicated reading time, which I really enjoy. And kind of going back to what I had talked about two months ago after I had seen the J.R.R. Tolkien biopic entitled Surprise Tolkien, my wife and I had said, oh, yeah, we totally have to read a couple of different biographies and compare notes because this is a biopic. It is obviously taking liberties. So I picked up J.R.R. Tolkien, a biography by Humphrey Carpenter, and Kaja picked up J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the century by Tom Shippey. And I really enjoyed this narrative about Tolkien's life because it was written in close collaboration with the Tolkien family. Carpenter had actually had some brief meetings with Tolkien himself about the writing. And my takeaway from this, other than just the fascinating life that he had lived, it really impressed upon me how much detail Tolkien had put into his creation and revision of Lord of the Rings and how much world building was really integral to his storytelling. Like I, I knew there was world building, but the depth that he went into to make sure that he even had the phases of the moon correct or the timeline that the various split sections of the fellowship were experiencing as they were going off and doing their various things. And at one point, he was even looking back at Pax drafts and tearing his hair out like, no, I have the moon setting in the wrong place in this. I have to go back and revise this. And he was, he was a constant tinkerer and a constant reviser. And it was really fascinating just to see how, how much he had put into that. And what it seemed like must have been absolutely agonizing for his publishers to get this quote-unquote Hobbit sequel to print. 
<laughs> and seeing the details in his life, it was it was interesting to see exactly what liberties the biopic had taken. But it was also great that something had inspired me, as you said earlier, to engage in the actual the actual events of his life. The book that Kaja is reading starts kind of on a on a different direction. Like I I was excited to see, oh wow, this is how his life progressed and how linguistics became a more and more important part of his life. Kaja's reading a book that is more about the linguistic influence in his writing and then tangentially how his life events tied in with the linguistic. So it's kind of coming at the work from different ends. So we have quite a lot to talk about, like, oh, yeah, that lines up with what I read. Like, oh, well, I have more detail on this, this, and this, and she has more detail on that, that, and that. So both good work so far. Uh, I finished up the, the biography by Humphrey Carpenter. Kaja's still working on Shippy's work, but it's been a great discussion. And what more can you hope for? Not much. And the other work that I was really excited to dig into was by Ken Monshine, who is, is a Renaissance and medieval fencer and also a medieval and Renaissance scholar. And he wrote, I don't know if you want to call it an article, it was more a chapter, I guess, uh, The Italian School of Fencing, Art, Science, and Pedagogy, in a book called A Companion to Medieval and Early Modern Fight Books, edited by Timothy Dawson and others. And what this is, is basically an outline of the sociological and points of interest in Italian fencing in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. And if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know that I love historical fencing and the research into these treatises, especially in the Middle Ages and, and Renaissance. I used to be a practitioner and then I got hurt doing something entirely not fencing related, but it's had me on the injured list ever since. So I kind of do armchair fencing with the historical research. And it was great. There wasn't a whole lot of new information from for me, but it really did reinforce some of the things that I discovered when I decided to read all of those treatises that I could get my hands on between 1450 and 1670. And these are things that popped up in the reading, but I didn't really give voice to in the in the podcast so i think this is probably a good place to put them in and one of them is that i had read them all in chronological order but that was in really in some ways really arbitrary for a couple of reasons one playing into the other and the first is that italy was so fragmented in its own individual city-states so grouping all of these treatises together by calling them italian when these city-states would not have seen themselves as, as akin as we would see them today is just kind of geographic revisionist in our own mindsets, if, if that makes any sense. They, they shared a common language with different dialect, but really you know, somebody from Bologna would not see themselves as akin to somebody, say, in the southern part of Italy. Also, you have all these various subcultural dynamics, and those dynamics influence their martial arts. And you really can't see them as all Italian without also seeing how distinct and, and different these nation states were and how that impacted the martial arts that they were practicing. And second, the chronological order doesn't mean that one influenced the other, that fencing history isn't a progression. It isn't an evolution these things happened one after another but 
things didn't advance, so to speak. Like there isn't there isn't some sort of manifest destiny that fencing is progressing towards. And even if one person's work was written after Agrippa's, it doesn't necessarily mean that Agrippa influenced that person. I mean, specifically, I would say that Degrassi was written after Agrippa, but Agrippa didn't have nearly as much influence on Degrassi as he would some of the other works. And some previous works were more influential on Degrassi. So calling them chronological doesn't tell you a story. It tells you when things happened, but it's not, it's not a narrative, if that makes sense. Yeah. So his works did also introduce some ideas that were new to me, and that was, and this should have been obvious, but until somebody tells you, you don't really much think about it, and that's these fencing schools and these fencing treatises were very much works of the urban areas. And in some ways, it's like, well, where would you go to find a karate dojo? And if you were to go and, you know, a, a mini mall. No, wait, that's today. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> No, that actually is, there is some truth to that, because some of the schools that were set up, like Savulio, was set up in in London, and this wasn't part of Monshine's work, but I did read it in part of another work. Savulio set himself up in this kind of hip area of London and really focused on your experience walking into the school, and this Italian fencing master who was not noted for a lot of fencing victories in England, set up what I think Stephen Hand, if I remember correctly, called a mall dojo. So, I mean, that is, I mean, it's funny, but it's also historically kind of true that there's always these people setting up for something that's fashionable and something that's trendy, and the quality of instruction may or may not be there. But finding them in urban centers is going to be a lot more common than saying going to Mulvane, Kansas to find your to find your karate dojo. Like you're you're not going to find a whole lot of kung fu masters living in town of 5000. So part of the work of of these is is part of that urban way of life that gives birth to even the possibility of having these treatises such as having an area where there might be more people of wealth that might potentially be a patron that could make your treatise actually happen, have the funding for it to even go to print. And he illuminated a number of cultural and pedagogical nuances that were not obvious to me that were just from just reading the treatises and, and their attached introductions. So thank you once again, Ken Monshine. You have proved very useful in my hobbyist reading. Speaking of Ken Mondeshine, an article I've been meaning to send you for about a month from medievalist.net and it was written by Ken Monshine and send it. okay I will send it <laughs> it's entitled in defense of the society for creative anachronism and okay I don't think you understand I haven't received it yet James send it <laughs> and done oh my gosh you did <laughs> that was the only way to get you to shut up <laughs> It's not a stretch to say that Mr. Monshine is a is an authority on medieval matters. And that um, is Dr. Monshine for a reason. Exactly. He goes on in defense of the SCA, which, as listeners know, I've been a part of for many years. And he talks about how there are those in medieval academia who look down 
on society members. And they have this this mindset of, we're the proper authority for this. We're the only ones equipped to interpret the Middle Ages. What you're doing is wrong in your Joanne or fabric store tunics and tennis shoes and bamboo sticks. And he goes on to talk about how we're making a a real-life, week-by-week effort of recreation, which includes sword fighting, medieval cooking, visual arts, fabric arts, dancing, equestrian, and the list just goes on and on. And I really enjoyed seeing this from someone in the medieval academic community coming out in defense. Are there a lot of people who get into the society for more of the social aspect of it than the historical research? Absolutely. But then there are also others who do both. Right now, at this time of year, thousands upon thousands of SCAers have descended upon a farm in, in Pennsylvania for the two-week war Penzik. I had a chance to go to it uh, 10 years ago. And while I was there, there was a woman who I've grown to become good friends with. She had brought her own supplies, but using materials that were found there on site, mud, stones, and more, was making a earthen medieval oven. She made it to recreate a period style of creating glass beads. No way. Yeah. I watched her do it for a while. I watched her creating the glass beads with this mud oven. It wasn't mud anymore, but with this earthen clay oven, and it was incredible. Most of it made with stuff she found there on site. That's really cool. Using period resources and what documentation she could find. If that's not academic medievalism, I don't know what is. And it's been interesting because I've heard of a couple of instances where scholars are trying to figure out, well, how did they do this? How did they do this? How did they do this? And every once in a while, an SCA member like, oh, yeah, I tried a hundred different ways, and this is the only way I could get to get it to work. Take a look. And every once in a while, they're like, by golly, I think she has a viable idea. Yeah, see, that's the thing about a lot of people in the SCA. We're not just reading. We're doing We're trying it out, and we've been doing it for a long time. This September, the kingdom I live in, Onstiora, is going to be celebrating its 40th anniversary. And we're not even the the oldest kingdom. So, I mean, are we silly at times? Yeah. But you know what? Give us our due. Um, Hold on. Wait. Are you saying that the medieval ages weren't silly at times? I've looked at that illumination that they have in, in them, their books, and the things that the rabbits are doing are pretty wild. Oh, I posted one that was an illumination of a trumpet-blowing rabbit riding on the back of a what looks to be a monk, and then the next picture is of a illuminator going, LOL, what did I just write? <laughs> Was that it for you for Geek Out, Mike? That is it for me for Geek Out, James. Excellent. All right, let's move on to the main subject at hand. A few months ago, one of my colleagues came into the room, and uh, I don't even remember what it was that we were discussing, but he related an experience that he had uh, had in Final Fantasy fifteen, where he was incentivized to be to slaughter ordinary harmless animals in order to harvest their horns and sell them to poachers now he didn't need the experience and he didn't need the money but because the animals were there and because he knew he could sell the horns 
he went ahead and did it. And he expressed uh, some discomfort uh, when he realized that he was just killing things to be killing things. That's because he's a monster. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of an icky request. So. Yeah. yeah. And so it, it led me to wondering about how we decide to make decisions and how we evaluate their moral consequences in something as regimented as a video game. Hmm. Yeah, I've had I've had a similar experience, except it went all the way back to King's Quest Four, and there was part of the point of this this game is that you're going on this quest to get this magical fruit, which has healing properties that you give to your father, and it'll help him recover and he'll get better, and then the kingdom can go forward. After I finished playing the game, I went back to see okay, what other story options are there, and part of my thought was, would it even let you eat that fruit? And so eat fruit and you ate it and then end game your dad dies i mean because uh. there's no fruit to save this i felt horrible for days like for <laughs> days i felt awful and it was it was one of those things like because of i mean i was a kid and this is where i was spiritually i was wondering if there was something that emotionally negatively powerful in the game it must be some sort of satanic influence like i mean it was hmm. it was really jarring for me was there so, chick tracks about it that made you feel even worse? <laughs> I probably should have told them about that so they could write a chick track specifically about this game mm-hmm. that everyone could enjoy for the wrong reasons. <laughs> or maybe the right reasons. So, I mean, this is, this is kind of a weird thing because video games are a simulated reality. And we have to start with a couple of very basic points before we even address this subject. And that is one, we have to acknowledge that there is, at least in terms of actual violence, there was initially one study that came out that said there's a link between video game violence and actual propensity towards violence. And the overwhelming majority of the psychological community says that's bogus. There is no established link between video game violence and actually carrying out acts of violence. And second of all, most video games are, if you were to carry out these actions in the real world, are morally questionable, if Mm -hmm. not outright wrong. I mean, if you play a first-person shooter, and I'm not saying that playing a first-person shooter is bad. What I'm saying is if you go into the real world and your only ability to de-escalate and your ability to resolve conflicts comes from a golf bag full of weapons, something is wrong. Um, (laughs) I, I even have some very serious moral questions for Mario. I mean, think about it. This guy just shows up in the middle of a kingdom where all we know stomping on people not only that but here it is it's like bowser let's just look let's let's back up and look at the context for this guy this guy is living in an entire land full of ash and fire and weird creatures he's some sort of dragon turtle thing i mean this is i'm pretty sure that this is nuclear fallout i think that peach nuked him and mario just sees that somebody's (laughs) taking a political prisoner is like oh the pretty girl is obviously the victim here when really bowser was taking the high ground in not retaliating in kind and taking political prisoners until he could get reconstruction and reparations you realize you realize what you've done 
you've made us all realize that Super Mario Brothers is the prequel to Fallout. Oh, <laughs> okay. Super Fallout Brothers. Yes. <laughs> but seriously. I guarantee there's I mean, a mod out there. <laughs> there's going to be now. <laughs> But seriously, even as, I mean, it, it, these are simulated realities, and we're able to dismiss them as simulated realities. But then again, there's something like with your friend who, or coworker, who has asked to slaughter animals that had nothing to do with anything except for their value. How do we make moral choices in simulated realities, and when does it actually have actual ethical weight? Because I think there is a point. You talk about Mario Brothers. I can remember my first moral choice in a video game was I played one particular game for a long time, and I had to ask myself, do I or do I not shoot this dog that has been laughing at me for missing all of those ducks? <laughs> yeah, I actually thought of he, that. As he haunts well. me. He haunts me to this day. His mocking laugh. We have the ability to shoot the dog. And I honestly, I think that the way that that is presented in the narrative of the game really sets a certain tone. Is that, yes, you can shoot the dog. But when you shoot the dog, you don't really have the moral consequence of shooting a dog. It's very cartoony. It's like Tom and Jerry shot in the face. As opposed to you watch this thing whimper and gasp and crawl back to you its master wondering surely you'll fix this yeah and uh, you know well the idea of putting ethical situations and moral dilemmas into video games is still a rather recent one when you weigh that against how long video games have been around the first time i came across something that made me question the manner of how i was going to play a game was Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, a game which I'm sure both of you have experience with as well. Not so recently that I can remember anything about it. Fair enough. Oh, man, um, no, I still have vivid memories of this game. Now, both games. Yeah. One in. Now, I discovered very quickly that you could play your character as someone with more light or Jedi-like tendencies or the choices in action and conversation that were presented to you gave you the option of playing someone more dark-hearted who would eventually become more like a Sith. And your choices had a direct impact on conversations and events that happened later in the game and also upon your physical appearance. And I'm sure this is a surprise to absolutely no one on this podcast. I played it straight Jedi Knight first time I played it, because I, I couldn't fathom playing it a different way. Now, I did attempt a second playthrough about a year after I finished it, and I thought, well, just so I get a different play experience, I'll try to play the Sith side, you know, make some dark side choices. And frankly, I found that I you? couldn't do it. <laughs> I just could It's one thing to choose a rude response to someone in the conversation choices, it's something else entirely to choose those actions, whether it's stealing something or killing or hurting someone outright. Okay. I want to ask one question before we get too far. You said you went back for a different play experience. What were you, what were you looking for 
in that experience? What were you hoping to find? Nothing very deep, I'm going to admit. I was just curious how different the game would be playing it as a different alignment. Is it as your own person, what it felt like to dictate somebody of a different alignment or story factors or what was... Story factor. Okay. See which direction the story would take and uh, the interaction with the uh, companion characters. Makes sense. Brian, you were going to say... I had a similar experience with Mass Effect. I played it through and I followed the Paragon path as well as I could. Uh, and then I thought, okay, well, I know that there's there's different endings to this if you follow the other path. So I tried to go through and do the Renegade path. And at every point where it's like, this is a major Paragon or Renegade decision, I was like, I can't do the bad thing. I just, I can't bring myself to to roleplay yeah. that character for some reason. Oh, I did the exact same thing. I played each of the three Mass Effects through twice. Each time I was Paragon all the way, with one exception. In Mass Effect 2, during one of the side character loyalty missions, we were having to interrogate a crime boss to try to figure out the location of this um, of your, your side character's son. And it gave you the option of either A, listening to him rant at you while he is tied down in an interrogation, police interrogation room, or um, work him over for the information. Uh, I'm going to fully admit he got worked over a little bit because I found him so <laughs> annoying. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, when that renegade icon pops up, I'm going to pull that right trigger and slap him around a bit. It's interesting, as I played Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2, and like both of you, my first instinct was to play it through light side all the way. And similar experiences with the Jedi Knight series. Play it through as a Jedi Knight. And then after I was done with that, I'm like, well, I wonder what the dark side story is. And so what I was looking for was how does this turn out? What, is, what are the turn of events? And while I, was, I did complete all the games and the dark side quest, but I would say that... You know, I don't like the way that my Yoda action figure is looking at me so disapprovingly. (laughs) In Mass Effect, there was also one problem that I had where I couldn't ever get, like, a fully Paragon playthrough because there was one spot where you're having a conversation with the Krogan, and knowing about the Krogan's culture, getting in his face and, and... Playing it tough is the right decision. He's not going to respect you otherwise, and that's what his culture is going to say, this is the right decision to make, is to get in my face. But if you do that, it counted as a renegade point. And that just drove me crazy. Mm. It's like this this assumption of a cultural superiority of humans over the Krogans. And it's like, man, that, in a really weird way, it was like kind of a colonial mindset that I didn't expect to see at that spot in a in this game. Mm-hmm. I don't I think know. That's kind of off the topic, but <laughs> no, no, it is not. It is absolutely on point with this topic because what we're talking about is moral choices in video games, and what we have is there are certain sets of moral assumptions that the designers have when really they are coding their ethics into the game. Mm-hmm. And so, if we have choices that are that are dependent on somebody else's code of ethics and we think that that's not thought through that is fully totally up to us to examine and critically evaluate 
what is ethical in these scenarios. And I think that we can learn a lot more from those areas than if we just kind of go along blindly without calling out. You know, this is this idea of morality is based in an unhelpful, destructive colonial mindset. With that in mind, no, no, I I had to stop and think about it for a second, because with that in mind, there was a uh, something that bothers me in Fallout 4. Of course, I've written about Fallout 4 in the past and how the only answer to 95 percent, 99.5 percent of your problems is to shoot it. But in the main quest, and I'm going to drop a little bit of spoilers here. If you haven't played Fallout 4, uh, well, you're out of luck. I'm going to spoil it for you. <laughs> <laughs> there are three factions. No, one, two, four factions in the game. And ultimately, you wind up aligned with one or the, another of them. And the ending that you get is dependent on which faction you align yourself to. Well, three of those factions, including the one that I think was the most humane and the most you know ethical of the four three of those endings involve nuking the fourth one uh the only ending in which you don't set off a nuclear bomb in the middle of boston is the one with the uh body snatching robots it's like that everybody is against you know everybody thinks they're evil and quite frankly the things that they are doing are evil but the only peaceful solution to the game involves siding with those guys and they wind up wiping out two of the other factions anyway now they don't do it in such a way as to create another nuclear crater but still i had to wonder about what the the game designers were pushing what what their ethical framework was that the only non-violent solution is to side with the bad guys it just i i'm still not sure exactly what it was that they were wanting me to think about was it the sort of game where you think that they they had intended to be thought-provoking? Or do you think they were just laying out different narratives and, eh, well, it's, it's a fallout scenario, so of course there's going to be new things. Yeah, I think they got a little bit caught up in their their tagline of war never changes, and that the, mm. the only natural solution is that there's going to be more conflict and there's going to be more violence. And they never gave a thought to the player who wanted to put a stop to that violence now they did in uh in far harbor one of the expansions where there actually is a solution that's not great but at least it doesn't involve totally wiping out one of the factions but i i I just don't know exactly what it was that was the point that okay well the only way to really get a, a satisfying and well it's not a satisfying but a uh humane result is to side with the body snatching robots and you know they're guilty of thousands of murders throughout the commonwealth themselves so i don't know it was i found the whole framework unsettling and unsatisfying and see i didn't even finish that game because i got to the part of where you find out that and more spoilers that the head of the body snatching robot society is your son who you've been looking for the entire game, mm-hmm. and you decide whether you really are following him and decide to join them or you're being undercover for one of the other factions. You do jobs for them. And honestly, I just kind of ran out of interest. Mm-hmm. The, the writing started to, the rationale behind so many of the missions they sent you on started to feel really weak. 
And I was getting sick and tired of constantly getting messages saying an outpost is under attack. <laughs> right. The only thing that actually let me get all the way through that, because I had a real problem with their mission. Okay, you have to go and destroy the railroad now. It's like the only way I could justify that to myself was because there's a bug in the game where there's this fight between the railroad and the Brotherhood of Steel. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, one of them hits one of the townspeople in Capitol Hill or in Bunker Hill. Yeah. And that causes the town to go to aggro against the railroad. And so the railroad slaughters everybody in the town. Ooh. And it's, it's, it's totally a bug. It's not supposed to happen. But I was like, oh, well, you know, they committed this massacre, so I feel okay with letting them out. <laughs> <laughs> so let I me, threw my nuclear grenade me... into their bunker and up they went. <laughs> let me ask you guys this question. Do you think that there is anything morally wrong with playing these games knowing that you are going to be if you go in knowing that you are going to give your characters morally wrong actions basically is there anything morally wrong with me going and playing knights of the old republic and saying yeah i'm going to do a dark side campaign i think it comes down to and we've had this discussion before recognizing that you are playing fiction this is a fantasy game and and being aware of that through all of it, yeah, I'm 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 making some bad choices, but the only things that are suffering are pixels on a screen. And being aware and cognizant of if this is gonna have an impact on me on how I make my moral choices in real life, or I'm just doing this out of curiosity to see if the plot, if the storyline is going to change, how does my interaction with the characters go? Where do their individual storylines go if I play it in this dark side, renegade manner of gameplay? And then I just think it comes down to each individual person and what they feel comfortable with. Brian, your thoughts? I think that you really should be examining your motives, the reason that you want to play in that fashion. And I don't think that there's anything inherently immoral or unethical about playing a game in such a way. Um, But... If you're doing it because you want to revel in the darkness and you want to enjoy the bloodbath, then maybe look at yourself and, and ask yourself, what is it that I'm feeding in that circumstance? Like like I said, when I play Mass Effect or uh, Knights of the Old Republic or Fallout, I have a hard time making the immoral choice, even when that's the game that I want to play, because I feel like that's leaving a stain on me personally you know, completely aside from my character that I don't want to be the the person who thinks that way. I don't want to be the person that acts that way. And I don't think that it, it would be wrong for me to do so, but that's know, not a, entertainment a, for you. Right. Right. It's not, it's the same reason that I don't watch breaking bad. You I'm know, I don't ask you exactly that question. I can't, I can't watch it. Uh, I can't watch Dexter, you know, being Im- immersed in that darkness and that, uh, that lack of empathy just it's not entertaining to me and it's Mm -hmm. it's not i don't think it's good for me and you know of course your mileage may vary you you may have a completely different experience but that doesn't mean that i don't like dark material i mean i i totally enjoyed bioshock and that's Mm -hmm. pretty dark that that gets that gets gruesome i'm running this uh this primetime adventure game which hopefully will get pretty dark itself but 
I don't want the characters to be the type that are embracing that darkness unless it's Mm -hmm. giving something more from watching that happen than it's taking away from from me, if that makes sense. Mm. So perhaps if it's part of a redemption arc, you don't mind it as part of your narrative. Even if it's even if there's no redemption there, if it's just a matter of, oh, this horrible look, this hor- I did this horrible thing, and here are the consequences. Mm. Um, you don't necessarily have to come back from it in order to to see the wrongness and to see the the horror that results. Um, and of course, I do like a good redemption story arc. I mean, that's that's a fun game to play, but it's not necessarily the only uh, objective I could see there. So, James, where do you weigh on in terms of your enjoyment of, like, Breaking Bad or an anti-hero that's dark? Never watched Breaking Bad for several reasons. I've been trying to think of a television show or a movie which has a character who goes through a redemptive arc. And there's a lot Star of... Star Wars episodes one through... They don't six. exist. <laughs> don't exist. We're not even going to put this in the podcast. Hmm. I had one in my head for a moment. I'm so sorry. And then it disappeared. I haven't watched Game of Thrones either. It's because I don't have a desire to watch a lot of horrible people doing horrible things to each other. <laughs> yeah. See, it's funny because I watched Breaking Bad and I thought that it was, I thought it was an incredible narrative arc. And granted, there were times that I'd watch the show and I'm like, Ugh, wow, okay, can can we watch an episode of Care Bears before we go to bed? <laughs> I feel like I need something cleansing right now. I, I never felt like it was something that was going to morally or spiritually impact me. I mean, part of the point is to recognize that this person could have made other choices. This is how it could have gone better. Here's where, here is your out, dude. Take it. And watching the downward spiral of the antihero was just part of the narrative arc. And once it was done, I'm like, wow, that was a fantastic story. And I I think part of that is, yeah, there wasn't any sort of reveling. Like, it's not like you're sitting there and watching it and saying, wow, that was so great how we set off the bomb in that nursing home. That was just, oh, man, that I feel so hyped right now. <laughs> uh, the same way with watching the, the dark side arcs in the Star Wars video games, there was nothing in that that I thought was oh man, I got such a thrill out of, and I think that we do raise the question is that if you are engaging these these darker arcs, that it that yes, it is a simulated reality but here's the question, what are, what are you getting out of it? Is, is this just an interesting story arc which you play through or watch and then leave there, or is this feeding something. And I, I think that there's not a direct answer, but there really needs to be some questioning. Is If this is feeding something, what is it feeding and why do I like to revel in these choices? Mm-hmm. I do want to make mention of, we're going to head back to Mass Effect again. And I think Please. the reason I we, that in my notes we keep coming back to that is because they did such a great job of not only seeing which way you would go whether it's going to be you're going to write you know trigger for a paragon moment or a renegade moment but they presented you with moral dilemmas where there is no truly good or evil choice right there were a lot of gray areas 
the one that and and each game had many but the one that sticks out in my head is from Mass Effect 3 and it involves the the race known as the Quarians and the robot race the Geth and hundreds of mm-hmm. years ago the Quarians had made the Geth the Geths achieved sentience and when they started to achieve sentience the Quarians decided to try to wipe them out that didn't work the Geth fought back and the Geth killed the Quarians by the billions even kicking them off their own homeworld and for like 300 years the Quarians have been traveling through space in a wagon trail of spaceships just trying to survive. Now, there is a moment in Game 3 where the Quarians and the Geth are having a final throwdown battle for the Quarian homeworld. And you've done missions for the Quarians. You have a Quarian who's part of your crew. She can even be a romantic interest if you so choose. And even at one point you do have a Geth who is part of your crew. And you hear both sides of the story throughout the games... But it all comes down to this. You have a choice which one you're going to support and which one could die. You can support the Quarians, and you would help them get their homeworld back. The Geth will be wiped out, and uh, you've got an ally to fight against the big evil of the galaxy-ending Reapers. Or you could side with the Geth. The Quarians would all die. As a race, they would be extinct, but you would gain an ally against the Reapers, who is arguably much, much stronger than the Quarians, and that puts you in a much better position to win the final battle. So, do you help the Quarians, who, are they the good guys? Absolutely not, but you're more familiar with them, they feel like the better choice and they'll be there to help you at the end? Or do you help the Geth, who, through the entire first game, they were the bad guys, but now they could help you win the big battle, and you'd only be sacrificing millions for the sake of saving billions. Now, the game does provide you with a third choice. If you have some of your skills in conversation and diplomacy and more, and if you've done your Quarian crew member's loyalty mission, and they are 100% loyal to you, and you, you achieve that, then it gives you a third option to where you were able to talk the two of them into making peace. But if you haven't done that, then you've got to make a choice. I think that Mass Effect has done a pretty good job, because I was talking with a friend of mine about just this very subject, and he brought Mass Effect in several times. Uh, they do a really good job of introducing what I have in my point two in terms of what really gives weight to moral choices in video games. Uh, The first one was, what are you getting out of it? The second one is, is there something that the designers are intending to be morally complicated for the purposes of us as consumers to wrestle with these ideas for as a means that perhaps on a pretty surface level, obviously this isn't a moral philosophy class, it's not an ethics class, but it does give us opportunities to think about, well, what is the more right or more wrong choice of committing genocide among the guests or at least blowing up a good portion of them or some other race or using a virus to rewrite their brains and essentially taking away any sort of self-determination or agency for themselves and brainwashing them into being peace-loving creatures and my friend was saying this this choice was something he had to walk away from the computer screen and think about. Like what and so did I. Is it yeah. Is it more right or or more wrong to kill them or to strip away agency? Where did you come down on that, Brian? 
I had a, a sort of a futurist interpretation of I recognize the the existential risk uh, represented by the artificial intelligence and the GIF and the fact that ultimately what the Reapers become, they started probably something similar to the GIF. And so I said, these are artificial beings created by another natural race in the universe. And I use that to justify myself in giving them the virus and, and taking away their, their own agency. Um, and if I hadn't had that option, I'd have gone ahead and sided with the Quarians. See, I think that this is this is one function that having these moral complications in video games is is good for if we have some sort of venue or forum to establish actual moral philosophy on these subjects. Like, what what does it mean to be an agent? What does it mean to have autonomy? And you know, what what does it mean to have life? And what weight do we assign to to all of these factors? So I think that's mm -hmm. really good of video game designers to put in these not really ethics lessons, but at least ethics conversation starters that we can engage in, hopefully engage in, in deeper grounds. It kind of reminded me a little bit of some of the, the territory that Star Trek has covered uh, between the a measure of a man where they were determining whether or not data was a person. And mm. then later on with all of the, the debate about whether a holographic program could be achieve sentience and whether the holographic doctor programs mm -hmm. should have rights. And honestly, I think that this particular decision in Mass Effect made me think about that question a lot harder. And then when I encounter it in, in Star Trek and in other places, thinking about, okay, so if it comes down to a choice of data versus a natural person, I, natural in air quotes that you can't see me using right now, does that change the the uh, equation if it was data versus a, a human being or a human being versus a human being? Do we say that because data was created and he could possibly be created again, that he has less value? Or does he represent, in fact, some kind of extra threat to humanity mm -hmm. because we've introduced something into the universe that we don't necessarily have the ability to control? And that was a question that I think Mass Effect asked better. Does this unit have a soul? Mm -hmm. When that question came up in Mass Effect 2, it punched me. That was not what I was expecting to hear <laughs> in a third-person shooting game. Right. There's another game that uh, I actually wanted to talk about that explores this quite a lot. And this wasn't actually the bit of it that I wanted to talk about. But uh, for the PlayStation, there's a game called Detroit Become Human, which is about androids that have essentially evolved their programming to the point where they're, they're having emotions and they're becoming sentient. And it really, it really explores it very, very thoroughly. It's a fantastic game that I only got to see about maybe an hour of, of play on it, but... It almost made me want to buy a PS4 just to play that one game. It was actually one of the prompts for by suggesting this topic because the girl that I was watching play it, the central character is an android cop whose job is to find other androids that are malfunctioning and deal with them. And he goes into a, uh, a strip club uh, where these two androids are performing 
and he, he corners them and they're they're talking and this character has a partner who he's a gruff you know typical slob cop kind of stereotype but his opinion of your character you can change it based on your actions and he's got his opinions and he'll say something and you come down to the point in this scene where the two girls run away and one of them's climbing a fence and Heidi shoots her uh, Heidi being the, the girl that was actually playing the game and I'm just like I'm, I'm watching I'm just kind of shocked that she she did this because she shot this this android in the back and she says I didn't want her to die but I shot her anyway and she was mm. she was convinced that her partner wanted her to pull the trigger. And so this artificial person talking to an artificial artificial person, she valued this guy's opinion enough that she did something that would she knew was wrong. Her character mm. knew was wrong, but she did it anyway. And in fact, he didn't even want her to do that. It was just her her understanding of his character. She thought he wanted him to. It was a really really interesting moment. I've watched a couple of playthrough videos of Detroit Become Human because it looks like such a beautiful game, a great premise, and I also don't have a PS4 or the money to buy one. Right. <laughs> there have been so many games that have come out that have had me wanting a PS4, but I can't justify that. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the only games that I've ever seen where I was just content to sit back and watch somebody else play it. And, you know, she's asking me for advice, and I said, oh, no, go, go, get the polar bear, the polar bear. And not having the controller in my hand didn't bother me at all just because it was so interesting to watch and so interesting to watch the decisions that she was making and because they were real decisions. I mean, they they were choices uh, that affected the, the total outcome of the game later on. And it was it's a fantastic game of just exploring that that ethical problem of, well, a lot of ethical problems, really. When do you use violence? How much is a life worth? What is a life? Mm -hmm. The game Bioshock delves into that in a, in a very small way, but one that has repercussions throughout the entire game, especially at the end. I've only played a little bit of the first Bioshock. I played all the way through Bioshock, uh, what was it called? Bioshock Infinite. Infinite. Yeah, instead fantastic. of being under the sea, you're up in the city in the clouds. It, that was a fantastic game. The original Bioshock, you have these powers, and you can only use them if you have enough energy. And you can find your energy in bottles, or there are these characters running around called the Little Sisters. They're usually guarded by a giant, murderous, steampunkish robot called Big Daddies. But as you come across Little Sisters, they're chock full of the stuff, of the energy, and you're presented with a choice. Do you... I forgot what it was called. Um, Harvest. Harvesting them, yes. Now, you have two different ways of doing it. You can either harvest in a small way, which leaves the girls alive, and you, you harvest a little bit of energy from them, or you kill them, and you harvest all of the energy from them. And making that choice, many people would think, oh, this isn't going to matter, and this is just an extra boost of energy. As you do that, it has direct impact on the ending of the game hmm. and not only that but the the little cinematic that goes along with harvesting the little sister i did it exactly once it's disturbing it was so disturbing i couldn't do it again i was like i don't need the bigger reward i'll make the game harder for myself because that was that was too much and it was oh man 
And I did it because, you know, the, the character that's guiding you through the game, Atlas, he's been building trust and he tells you they're evil. They're not people They're You know, they will murder you in a second. Go ahead and kill her. And I believed him. And man, that, that little cinematic was just so affecting. It's like, oh, I cannot do that again. <laughs> and I didn't, I only played it through the once. And so I actually lost the best ending because I had done that one time. You have to release all of them in order to get the best ending. And I don't even want to know what, what it would do to you to get the the worst ending, harvesting every single one of them and watching that every time. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> Who could do that? I don't know. Well, I guess that is a question like, Okay, so you have somebody who is in your congregation, who's in your Bible study group or co-worker or whatever, and says, yeah, I, I did play through to get the worst ending. I didn't, you know, I didn't really like the cinematic. I mean, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've not played Bioshock. <laughs> but they said, yeah, I didn't particularly enjoy that cinematic, but that's how you get that ending. Is there a conversation that you would be inclined to have there or a question you would be inclined to ask there? Hmm. That's a heavy question. Yeah. I can see... I'm dodging the question if I say that. <laughs> um, so basically you're asking, would you, to get the certain cinematic, would you make the bad choice? If it, well, meant, you got to see a, if it meant you got to see a certain ending. It, you have a friend who is hypothetically sitting in on our conversation and has said, oh, yeah, I, I did play through it to get the worst ending, and I did harvest every single little sister to see it. I didn't, you know, the cinematic was what it was, but I really wanted to see that ending. Is there a conversation or a question that you would you would feel that you'd want to have or a question you'd like to ask? You mentioned earlier the correlation of the influence of video games upon a person's real-life actions and mindset. And I think it comes down to the individual. As Brian has said, those are decisions that he won't make because of the, as he put it, the stain that he would feel upon himself. And that rings true with myself. But other people, to them, a video game is just a video game. They have different thresholds. They have different thresholds. Just like how some people can play a couple of rounds of blackjack and laugh about it later. And other people can't because they know if they do, they'll be heading to the casino and blow thousands of dollars. Some people can have a couple of beers at the end of the day and be perfectly fine. Some start at 2, and that's before 6 a.m., and they finished it with 24 because they're an alcoholic. It's, it's their threshold. It's the type of person they are. It's uh, how they're wired. Some people okay. can come to this video game, see it as purely a video game. Whatever is done in the game has no effect on who they are, how they act, and what they do. Is there a point where there's just a line in the sand that, that's drawn? I mean, if, if you, there's a point where somebody says, yeah, I absolutely love X type of video game, X type of media, and it doesn't impact me. And the answer to that is, dude, you are fooling yourself. <laughs> I mean, if we're getting into something that is, I mean, there's an obvious example. Like if we could say there is something that is just absolutely pornographic in either its violent or sexual or sexual violence nature, you would have a conversation with somebody like, you know, you might want to check in because this, this might be having more of an impact. Your media consumption may be having more of an impact than you think it is. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's, that's where I would be having that conversation. 
is there a line that's drawn before that or before those that subset that I mentioned? Yeah, I think that going back into Bioshock territory because it's concrete and safe, I think that, yeah, if someone had said that, I might ask a follow-up question, something along the lines of, well, when you say that you didn't enjoy it, did it disturb you at all? Or was it purely a gamist decision that, oh, I wanted more Adam? And because honestly, I think if somebody said, oh, yeah, it was just a cutscene, then, okay, then, yeah, it's probably just a cutscene. They're, they're someone who's playing a game as a game. I would actually be a little bit more concerned with somebody who said, you know what, that cutscene was pretty bad, but I went ahead and I watched it over and over again because I wanted the reward. Okay, well, what is then too far for you before the reward is no longer adequate? I mean, I knew for me it was watching mm. that thing one time. And, you know, who knows what the correct, again, with the finger quotes, answer to the question would be. But I think it would probably at least be worth asking that that follow-up question to, to this hypothetical person. Mm. Has there been a point in some game with you, Mike, that you've said, okay, no, this is just too far? I know that there have been some tabletop games that I've looked at it and just said, oh man, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I mean, it video games, not so much. I, I mean, I tend to skew retro and Mm -hmm. funny. There's, there's not a whole lot of envelope pushing socially or morally in those games, but there's just some that have been just been a little too gross. And I, I, I would actually say that a bit too pornographic and it's violence like it's mm-hmm. like the board itself like the game areas are bits of ripped flesh that are stitched together and where the stitching is is the is your territory and i've i'm like you know that is that's outside my comfort zone <laughs> um there are some people that if i if somebody had said oh yeah that's man whatever i like the mechanics that's there but if somebody had said to me, no, I, I really love the art, I mean, I would probably ask the question. I mean, I, I have thresholds of games that I won't play. Like if, if I think that they're making light of something that is already a serious social issue and you know, I have certain triggers that if it's making light of you know, sexual violence or prostitution or victimization in that regard, I will say, whoa, that's, that is not a game I'm able to entertain because this is too serious. This is too real. And that's not just pixels on the screen. That's people I know. And that's a mm. struggle. And to just say, oh, yeah, that's a thing that we can use to entertain ourselves. I, I feel really uncomfortable. And I would probably ask questions if I had friends that were, that were, really, into, that were really into those that were either a, a background part of the narrative or you know, established major line of the narrative or something they were really enjoying, I, I would start to ask some questions. Along those lines, I would be curious, the only games that have come out, well, there have been plenty of games that have come out that I have had no interest in playing, but ones that have been very popular for years now, which, for many reasons, I have not had an interest in getting into, have been the Grand Theft Auto games. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to say that. <laughs> um, and... We had a member some members of our congregation that said, oh yeah, we, we play that. And we're like, well, if that's your couple bonding time, but let's, let's unpack that because I've not played it. Yep. You tell me what's bothersome. The way it's portrayed is that you have, basically it's a Game of Thrones type, what I had in my head of horrible people doing horrible things to each other. That's the story. Criminals committing crimes, whether it's murder, theft, 
I don't know if rape is involved in any of them, but that's the game. The game glorifies in it, and that's part of the story. I don't know if there is a redemptive arc. I don't know if there's anything that could be put to a positive spin in them. I just don't know enough about them to really make that call because there's been enough in the negative columns that have made me not want to invest my money and my time. And so that's why I want to talk to someone who has played these and ask them, what's the story? What's the draw? What's the actual negatives? Are there any positives? I think that you actually raise a really important question here, and that is, what are your sources for understanding the dynamics of these games? Because if we go to the media, they are looking for just the next thing that they can vilify because mm-hmm. video games are very easily socially stigmatized. So you can point to a bad thing and say, no, this this is a bad thing. The people playing it are playing it for the wrong reasons and this is bad and the end of the world is going to happen because nobody will get these video games under control. The media loves to do this. But you raised a different question. Like, yes, I was exposed to the media. It raised the questions... So I would want to go to somebody who has played and find what are, you know, what are the elements and what are what are the redemptive qualities, if any. And that's a step that is all too often skipped, (laughs) which is why we had uh, to hide our Dungeons and Dragons manuals in church. When I say we, I mean, probably mostly just me. (laughs) No, I mean, this is the thing I've said this on the podcast before is that. D&D is a game that I tend not to play. I actually don't think I've ever played a session of D&D because the the satanic panic is still enough alive mm-hmm. that I've had parishioners like, well, it's, it's, it sounds like Dungeons & Dragons. Do you play Dungeons & Dragons? And I can honestly say no because I know that's a trigger for them. Mm-hmm. And so long as I can have that to say, no, I've not played this. I play this, this, and this. Like, well... Nobody's ever gotten on the news and said, that's horrible and everybody's going to kill themselves. So I suppose that has a pass. <laughs> but yeah, so information gathering from reliable sources, I think, is an, is an important part before we, we really evaluate what is the moral weight of engaging in this game or what am I engaging in my own brain if I do play it. And since none of us have actually played GTA, we probably aren't qualified to talk about it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely <laughs> not. Well, we can comment all we want. It's free country. I think that we've covered about as much. I mean, I can't see any other places for this to explore. I can, but it would add tack on another 45 minutes probably. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. I totally want to go multiplayer, but <laughs> I think we can't. Maybe we well, should I was just going to start talking from... about uh, invented ethics. Oh, like theoretical in my... ethics is amazing. Yeah. My Elder Scrolls games in which I played, try to play characters who won't use magic at all. Oh, gosh. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. It's really hard yeah, to do. Because magic is evil. You know, Mike, it took me till now to finally think of the character I was trying to think of who had a redemptive story. Okay. It's uh, Zuko from Avatar. Oh. Yeah. I wish, I th- I gotcha. I, I wish I'd thought of him. So much could be said. I think that we can do... <laughs> Here's the thing. We can do redemptive story arcs as another episode. That's a good idea. That would be a good one. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us for this discussion of moral choices in video games. And if you have any thoughts that we haven't explored uh, in terms of evaluating our own self and our own ethics and engagement of video games, drop us a line on Facebook or on Twitter, and we're more than happy to hear what insights you might have. Absolutely. 
Now, we started off the episode with a question from a listener. We always want more. We want your feedback, friends. And I think that will take us to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, what have you got for us? What moral and ethical situations await us at the end of the world? Oh, man, I really wish I had something moral for this. And I really, really wish I had the time to do the research that a listener had asked me. Uh, Would the Amish defend themselves against zombies? But I have not had the chance to research Amish path of theology yet. No, Robin Williams came up with the solution for that. You just present them a Bible, and you let them know that the translation that they had was wrong. In that instead of thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not quilt. Oh, e- Ezekiel will suddenly realize wow. that they could have had guns all along. <laughs> that, that, would be, that would be the downfall of all of our handmade bookshelves as we know them. Uh, but the, the real zombie apocalypse strategy this week, we have gone way too overboard with all these perimeter defenses. Every once in a while, one is bound to get through And this strategy this month is for that one. And that is to replace that wall-to-wall carpeting that you have in the living room with well-oiled bear traps. That's right. Even if one does manage to get through, it will just get its foot clamped down and perhaps even broken off. And one listener has suggested, wait, if you have all of these things that, that just cut zombies off at the knees, don't they still keep coming? Well, that's why you have more and more and more bear traps. There is only so far that they can crawl before eventually they're nothing but a torso and a well-clamped head. (laughs) I like it. Yeah, and this is the one that went out because it also was the least gross. (laughs) Caution for the sleepwalkers amongst us. Uh, maybe like a baby gate or something. The room. <laughs> I was having that exact same thought. I'm like, what if I get up in the middle of the night? I'm really thirsty. And instead of a glass of water, my leg gets destroyed. Take the doorknob off. <laughs> <laughs> or on the bear trap aisle at your local store, have an in cap of mini fridges. <laughs> Put it in your room. Well, gentlemen, is that going to do it for this episode? Sounds like it. It'll do it. Well, once again, we want to thank you all for listening in. We don't talk about our listeners enough on this podcast, but you all are awesome. You send us some fantastic questions, and we want to encourage you all to check us out at the usual places online. Of course, at our website at geekatarms.com, at Facebook at facebook.com slash geekatarms. Mike, what's our Twitter? It is ArmsGeek, because we love arms. That's right. We're all about the arms. And please leave us some feedback, especially if you subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play. It raises awareness for the show, and uh, we'd love to read your comments. Uh, One final note for all of our listeners. Pay attention online, because soon we will be posting what our first movie will be for our animated film club series. And finally, from Brian, Mike, and James, we want to say be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.